You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClinathan, and I'm excited that we have a special guest on the episode today, Wade. Uh, He's a little bit unconventional. He's just a volleyball with a handprint on him, but I think he's going to bring a lot to this episode. Okay, yeah, yeah. I have a a basketball, and he's got a a fist imprint on him. His name's Spalding. Uh, Not as pithy as Wilson, but, uh, you know, I guess I'll take it. Listeners, we're going to be reviewing a new Tom Hanks movie. This is the World War II thriller Greyhound. He yells on a boat, but he does not yell at a volleyball in that one, sadly. We're also going to be taking a look at an indie darling, a sci-fi thriller about aliens in a small New Mexico town, The Vast of Night. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 255 of Seeing and Believing. Distress rocket, sir. We have hits directly on the convoy. The wolf bag's haunting us. You both starboard bound! In 48 hours, we've lost seven ships. 50 souls. What you did yesterday got us to today. It's not enough. Not nearly enough. Yes, listeners, this is episode 255 of Seeing and Believing. That was a clip of Tom Hanks' new film, Greyhound. We're going to be jumping into our review here in just a moment. Kevin, we haven't gotten any theatrical releases lately, but we're getting more and more films that are hitting streaming services everywhere, and I'm excited to talk about two of those films today. Yeah, you know, there there is some disappointment among some big-name filmmakers. A certain Christopher Nolan is sad that uh, we are not quite ready to return to the theatrical experience just yet. But, you know, a good consolation prize is having so many movies just coming right to everyone's living room, so it's it's nice to be able to talk about those as two. Yeah, this is, this is the longest stretch since... Probably, I guess when I was a teenager, I didn't go to the movies too often, that I have not been to the theaters. Onward was my last film to watch in theaters, and I'm hoping that won't be the last film I ever watch in theaters, Kevin. I, I hope that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, things things aren't quite that grim yet, Wade, so, you know, chin up. I mean, I like Onward, right? It's, 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 a, it's fine. It's good. I liked it. Listeners, they, they know I have love for Onward, but don't want it to be the last movie I, I see in theaters. Listeners, this week's episode begins with a look at Greyhound, the new Apple TV Plus film starring Tom Hanks five years ago. Would I have ever imagined that I would have said that phrase? Here's the movie's official synopsis. In a thrilling story inspired by actual events from the Battle of the Atlantic, Tom Hanks stars as a first-time captain who leads a convoy of allied ships carrying thousands of soldiers across the treacherous waters of the quote-unquote Black Pit to the front lines of World War II. With no air cover protection for five days, the captain and his convoy must battle the surrounding enemy Nazi U-boats in order to give the Allies a chance to win the war. The film is directed by Aaron Schneider from a screenplay by, yes, 
Tom Hanks himself. Kevin, we've mentioned Castaway, but I'll go a little bit further. We already have a World War II Tom Hanks drama in Saving Private Ryan. We have a boat Tom Hanks in Captain Phillips. My question to you is this. Do you think a combination of the two, World War II boat Tom Hanks trademark, adds anything to the career of one of America's most likable stars? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you bring up Captain Phillips specifically because it does seem like there is a little bit of that performance's DNA in Hanks's performance here as the uh the naval captain in Greyhounds. The, the both of both films are kind of his character in them is not an outwardly demonstrative person, right? Like Captain Phillips has that big scene at the end where he finally breaks down. But for most of the film, it's kind of Hanks just being very steady and uh, a lot of whatever turmoil he's feeling is under the surface. And Greyhound is kind of a similar sort of performance in that we kind of see that his captain is very professional, very driven to, uh, you know, be a, a an effective leader and make the right decisions. But he's not he's not playing big here, I guess. And I think that that is actually maybe one of the best parts of this film is his lead performance, although there's some nice grace notes as well. I don't think that in the final analysis, Greyhound is on the level of a Captain Phillips or a Saving Private Ryan, but I think it's it's overall fairly sturdy, almost procedural look at uh, naval warfare. So I had a reasonably good time with it. What did you think? Yeah, you know, this is not a movie that's going to make you reassess the nature of warfare or even World War II. I think we do get a glimpse of the experience, and, and that might invoke some emotions. This is not going to go against the grain of the Tom Hanks archetype, but I think this is a, a pretty decent nuts and bolts drama. And when the film captures and bottles up the kinetic energy of this this hunt, we have these U-boats hunting this convoy. When we can kind of dig into that, I think the movie really does work. And I, I'm glad that you talked about Hanks's performance because I, I enjoyed watching him from the beginning to the end of this movie just internalize the turmoil. He has to project a certain self to his men and he's not getting any sleep for days on end. He's not eating, he's not drinking, he's not even getting off of his feet. And we actually get to see his bloody feet at one point in the film, a couple points in the film. And yet the eyes and the facial expressions really help to convey that there's a, there's a lot going on inside of him. And I think that propels the film forward. And then there's just some great there's some great action sequences. You just you never know what's going to happen. Just like these soldiers, they never know when the U-boat is going to appear. And so we're just kind of there buying our time until the next attack. And the film really excels, I think, on that level. Yeah, it does seem like that's really where the interest of uh, the director 
the star and the the writer, of course, being the same person as the star, their interests are really in just sort of being on this uh, bridge with this captain and the the uh, sailors around him, and just sort of really digging into the minute by minute process of conducting an engagement like this. And for some people that might not be the most immediately engaging sounding thing, like if you're a a World War II buff or somebody who's really interested in in naval military history, this is probably going to be, you know, just pure candy for a viewer like that. But beyond that, it is uh, engaging on some level just to really observe just the little bits of details that are sprinkled throughout this picture. I really liked how uh, Commander Krause, that's uh, Hanks's character, is sort of just essentially walking from one end of the boat, like the, the port side to the starboard side, and that is the extent of my nautical terminology, uh, just sort of looking out with his binoculars to see what he can see. Meanwhile, there are these sailors around him that are essentially... One person reads uh, a readout down in the radar room. They say something into a radio to another sailor, and then the sailor just literally parrots the exact same thing to Kraus. And that's just, it's something that's not very, it's not very sexy, so to speak. You don't really tend to see a lot of naval movies that really focus in that much on just sort of the physics of World War II era naval warfare, but it makes the the film engaging. Um, It's so engaging, in fact, that the kind of obligatory prologue where we find out a little bit about uh, Commander Krause's, uh, his his romance with uh, a woman played by Elizabeth Shue, there's just a single scene where they sort of just essentially establish that he has a life outside of the Navy, and then she just basically disappears for the rest of the movie. I almost wish that scenes like that weren't in this film just because it really just wants to be a lean, process-oriented wartime thriller, and I don't think it really needs anything more than that. When it deviates from that, I think that's maybe where it gets a little bit shakier. Well, and that scene is just not well done. It's a it's a very no. it's a poorly made scene, and I, I felt like the film should have gone more the route of Saving Private Ryan. Let this character kind of be a mystery, and if we do get that revelation later, like we get in Saving Private Ryan, where he says, yeah, I'm a, I'm a school teacher, and they're all just like, what, a school teacher? If we could get something like that later, I think that would have been great. Keep us on the boat, though, and let that dialogue carry the backstory, or just let it be a mystery. Let this be a survival picture. I love what you uh, mentioned, Kevin. All the jobs that are happening on this on this ship, there's a, an action sequence near the beginning of the movie where they first come into contact with a U-boat. And it's really wonderful because we have the person who is uh, listening to the sonar, we have radar, we have people on top of the boat with binoculars. All of these crew members are working together to try to survive. Now, obviously, Tom Hanks' character... Captain Krauss, he's in he's in charge. And they really live or die based on his decision-making skills. But this boat feels like a finely tuned watch. And I love just kind of just observing all of that. And at one point, there's even a character who 
who uh, gets a little nervous and he sneezes and he doesn't hear something that's coming to him over the radio. And so he has to check again. And another soldier looks at him and is like, don't let that happen again. And we get the, the sense that every single second on this boat counts and every single job is important if they want to survive. And I think that's just splendid. And plus, just just kind of watching the boats and watching the radar and they're listening to sonar and they're trying to mark where this U-boat is and they're trying to track it and we don't see the U-boat at all. I think that's wonderful. In fact, I would say the moments where the film chooses to go underwater and show these U-boats and even show them launch torpedoes is actually probably a weakness of the movie because now we get this extra perspective that the crew doesn't get and we lose some of that tension because we figure things out before the crew does. But when when the film just kind of sticks in the boat, which it does for the most part, we don't we don't go into any other boats, we don't go into any U-boats. I think it excels because it just it knows what it wants to be and it chooses to be it. And and I think that simplicity is is one of the benefits of the movie. It's funny that we would be reviewing this this film just the week after we reviewed Jaws, which famously, you know, doesn't show you the shark all that much until you're you know, halfway or even more than halfway through the movie. And just, you know, we talked on last week's episode about just how effective that is when the shark finally does show up. It just, it, it makes everything that much more intense and effective. And I do f- agree with you that the the film's at its best where you're kind of almost trapped on this ship with the sailors who are trapped on it. And you just you just see what they see and are kind of forced to sit with, the uncertainty, and maybe look at a white cap in the distance and wonder, is that a torpedo coming towards them, or is that just a wave? That's an effective tension builder, and the film is at its best when it sticks with that. I do, I probably would quibble that this film doesn't have, uh, doesn't really extend much beyond that perspective of, of, you know, on the boats and maybe slightly below the waves at some point, because Probably my favorite shot of the entire film is one where we're taken not just I know what you're gonna say uh, I know what you're for gonna a say. slight perspective <laughs> shot. We're taken above the clouds. So you you definitely know what I'm talking about. There's this incredible aerial shot. I think it's the the first night after this convoy has made contact with the multiple U-boats who will be uh, harassing them for the rest of the picture. And there's already chaos happening. There are all these distress flares going up from the civilian vessels that Hanks's uh, military vessels are shepherding. Uh, distress flares. There's flames from the ships that have already been torpedoed. And the the camera starts off kind of above them. And it's it's it pans out to kind of give us a larger view of the overall conflict, which makes sense. That seems kind of conventional, almost in an establishing shot sense. But then the camera continues to go up and up and up until finally we end up above the clouds and all of that chaos and mayhem is just maybe slight flashes that we see below the cloud cover and above all the audiences is just the aurora borealis and just pure, pure peaceful night sky. And I think that that is my favorite shot in the film because it, it suggests that this human conflict, as intense as it is for the participants, that's not all there is that's going on. And in fact, it 
seems like the director is actually very interested in uh, seeing the uh, the spiritual underpinnings. Uh, maybe not necessarily the conflict, but at least for Hanks's character and the way that he personally approaches his profession. And I think that that little grace note of taking us up above the clouds and lands just sort of essentially have almost literally a God's eye view of the conflict is this film at its very, very best where it kind of brings us out of the, the blink of perspective of wartime and into something that's a lot more both both peaceful and maybe even a little bit cold and altogether just more serene. Yeah, I love that shot. And I, I think, I think sh- that shot is great. Uh, and I think if the film would have cut down some of the outside POV shots and lessened it, I think that shot might have actually been a little more effective. And, and to some of the uh, some of the wider shots, the effects aren't all that great. Uh, they're fine. They're doable. But the, this is not uh, this is not a Dunkirk where models are being used. There's a lot of CGI, uh, and so when we're on the boat, I, I think things work uh, pretty effectively. The shots are pretty close. Uh, we we follow these characters around as if we are a crewman following them around. So we we get closer up angles and. Some of the shots where the lights turn red, and and I know there's going to be a viewer out there who knows the name of, of when the lights turn red, DEFCON 5 or whatever it is. I I, have, I don't know. But when the lights turn red at night, uh, it adds this uh, this texture to the movie. And there's, there's one point while the lights are on red and it's a, it's a, a difficult situation. Hope seems lost. And we get a U-boat commander who comes over the radio and begins to taunt them and even howl like a wolf. And that's a pretty creepy scene. And I think the film does a good job of of really focusing on the impending doom or the supposed doom. Any minute, there are individuals who could die. And most of the people in the ship are really young. They're just, they're young kids. And it, I think that's effective. Two, you you briefly alluded to this, the... Christianity of Captain Krauss. And I'd love to chat with Tom Hanks about this and and talk to him about why he chose to include so many of those elements in the story. We don't just have a character, uh, Krauss, praying one time. Uh, He prays multiple times throughout the movie. He has Hebrews 13.8. He has an image with that verse on it in his room he prays every single meal and there's a really heartfelt moment at the end where he prays and uh, it it really is it really is kind of wonderful because we see that we see that faith kind of bleed over because later on in the movie uh, there is an enemy ship that's exploded and the water, uh, the oil is kind of mixing with the water, and, and, and it has this red tint to it. And everybody's kind of rejoicing. And Tom Hanks's character is just kind of looking. And I think at one moment, he, uh, one moment, he even mentions the word souls. He understands that what he's doing is, is, is right, that uh, the Nazi regi- regime is, is evil. At the same time, he understands that People are dying, even if it's the enemy. And so we see the way his his faith affects him throughout the film. 
one of the the sailors even says, you know, congratulating him like fifty less krauts, and he his response is, is literally just fifty souls, and it's it's interesting to see this film really foreground his faith as a way to provide a counterpoint to the the war movie fireworks that we're kind of used to getting it doesn't it's not just window dressing it serves an important purpose kind of like that shot that we were talking about earlier where we leave the battle behind and go up above the clouds uh krause's faith in this film also tends to serve as a counterpoint where he has perspective on what's going on around him and what he's doing. That Hebrews verse that he has posted uh, in his quarters is, I, I think it's Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can kind of get the sense that Krause is trying to, he that's almost part of his uh, way of just conducting himself in general, is just trying to be steady, knowing that whatever goes on around him, whatever his fate might be, there is a single fixed point that he can sort of count on. And it's contained and explained in that verse from Hebrews. And again, it's just, it's a nice little grace note in an otherwise very procedurally focused film that takes it above and beyond just sort of guys on a boat doing a job to something that's a little bit more thoughtful than that. Yeah. Listeners, that is our review of Greyhound. It has just been released on Apple TV Plus, so you can check it out there. If you do have a chance to watch the film, make sure to let us know what you think. You can tweet us at Pod at Pod. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be talking about the vast of night. is Daydream by Nas. Listeners, we want to take an opportunity and thank all of you who have supported us via our Patreon campaign. It's simple, it's easy. There are so many different donation levels, and one of our favorites is the what can you buy for $5 level. You get a lot of perks, and Kevin, that begs the question, what could someone buy for five bucks? Well, you know, I think five bucks would would be a steal if you wanted to get a build your own Wilson kit. So, you know, just something that's <laughs> cut up your palm and then uh, a cheap old volleyball and just you know slap your hand on there, put a little bit of straw in there for for hair. And yeah. there you go. Yeah. Well, you know, whenever Castaway was released, 
I went to Blockbuster and I asked my dad if he could buy me the the Wilson antenna topper. And I didn't have a I didn't have a car. <laughs> I just thought it was cool. And he did. So I had it for the longest time. It was like this little figurine, you know, Wilson, and I don't know where it went. If I had it, I'd put it I'd put it on my antenna. It'd be pretty tight. But uh <laughs> I guess I could get the the kit for 5 bucks. Oh, I, I'm I'm disappointed in you, Wade, that you don't know what happened to it. Whereas Tom Hanks was so broken up, he just sobbing and <laughs> screaming as Wilson floated on to to better adventures. And here you are, just callously, you don't even know where Wilson is. <laughs> Shameful. Shame hey, on you. Just like Tom Hanks, I lost Wilson. It's just how it goes. Uh, it you know I miss I miss video rental places and. The little merchandise stuff they had. I, they'd have competitions. What I wish I still had it. Oh, we had this sweet uh, Harrison Ford, the Fugitive sweatshirt that we won from a, rent, a movie rental place. I wish I still had that too. I just I lose everything. Uh, you lose everything. <laughs> that is that is shameful. I am really curious to know what was actually on that. Was it just you know the poster, or was there a line from the movie? Like, did you walk around in wearing a sweatshirt that said "I didn't kill my wife"? <laughs> okay, no, no. It actually it was just a white sweatshirt with blue letters, and it said "Harrison Ford is the fugitive," and it was like the fugitive in the in the font that that's on the uh-huh. cover. It's cool. Like if if people wore it now, it'd be super trendy because it's. You know, that's like in style, right? Old t-shirts yeah. and stuff. Yeah, you know, minimal minimalism is in. Yeah, yeah, it's it's in. And, and retro is in, which is weird because it's like my childhood is now retro. Um, <laughs> and I'm only 33. I don't, I don't know what to, to say about oh. that. Listeners, we'll kind of get back to where we were. You can go to our Patreon page, <laughs> patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. And Kevin, a few months ago, we released our best films of the decade podcast episode, and then we made a bonus episode, best films of the decade 11 through 20. Now that's available only to our Patreon supporters. And longtime listener Christy Olson, she just replied to that, and she gave us a list of her favorite films of the decade at top 20. Now I'm going to read through these really quickly. And then we can just let everybody know if she's right or wrong. Um, one, <laughs> Knives Out. Two, Short Term 12. Three, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Four, Sing Street. Hey. Five, True Grit. Six, The Innocent. Seven, Interstellar. Eight, Leave No Trace. Nine, Jane Eyre, which I actually haven't seen. Ten, Winter's Bone. Eleven, Arrival. Twelve, Jojo Rabbit. Mad Max Fury Road. 14, The Kid with a Bike, 10, Cloverfield Lane, The Florida Project, 17, The Last Jedi, Warrior, I like that film a lot, 8th grade, and then number 20, The Bling Ring. I think it's a pretty good list. A lot of great films on that list. Yeah, and you know, much respect to Christy for not rushing it. Like a, a lesser cinephile would think, oh, you know, this this episode came out in March, and you know, I gotta hurry up and make my list now to kind of keep up. But Christy was like, no, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to consider very carefully what deserves to be on my top twenty, and I'm going to post it when I'm good and ready. And she has some really good picks on there. Love the the presence of the Florida Project. And leave no trace, especially on that top twenty. Both just excellent, excellent films. Oh yeah, there's there's a number of 
just fantastic ones. And I really like Warrior. It's it's not in my my top films of the decade, but I like that movie a lot. And then Eighth Grade, her number 19, I think that was like 12 or 13 for me. I think that is just a wonderful, a wonderful film. Yeah, you've got people who are making best of the decades lists in November and December, and the decade's not even over. And so I really appreciate Chrissy Olsen just taking the time and putting together <laughs> her list. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, letting us know your your top 20, Christy. We really enjoyed looking that over. We also really enjoyed the listener email we got from Dave Court up in Winnipeg in Canada. So that's uh, always nice to hear from our Canadian listeners. He had this to say about our review of Hirokazu Koraeda's The Truth, which we reviewed last week. He writes... Thank you so much for covering Cora Ada's latest film, The Truth. I found myself saying a big yes and amen every time you added a new observation. Thanks so much for that, Dave. He goes on to say, I love that you noted the bookends of the film, relating to the question, what will you say when you get to heaven? Although I do agree that Shoplifters is the better constructed film, The Truth has been quietly staking its claim on me as the more interesting and certainly more gritty film. Ironically, Shoplifters is the more linearly structured film, while The Truth is far more circular in structure as noted by its bookends, which is what makes the film so rich in terms of theme. He goes on to say, My favorite moment was the dance sequence. It's such an unexpected scene that breaks through the tension of the story and places the film's questions about time, memory, and retrospection in the spontaneity and beauty of a moment. It's the one moment in the film where time truly seems to just stop, and we get to see these characters freed of the burden of the passage of time. It's the kind of touch only someone like Corieta could bring. Thanks again, keep up the great work, and thanks for your dedication to in-depth conversation. Thanks so much for those thoughts, Dave. I'm really glad to hear that you are also a Corieta fan, and I enjoyed reading your thoughts on that film quite a bit. Yeah, I appreciate that email, Dave, and I love that you pointed out the dance sequence. I had that down in my notes, but we didn't get a chance to mention it. And it works exactly like like he says it does. It's this moment that the way it's filmed, the way it's shot, the way the characters react, you can just imagine that in 10 years, those characters will think back and say, hey, remember that time when? And it goes to those themes of, of memory and relationships. And it's also this moment in the film where some of the relationships are a little, uh, they're still untethered. And yet, they all kind of come together. And it, it just goes to show you, sometimes you, you're not getting along with certain people, but you can have this moment where you're all kind of getting along. And I, I love that just kind of beautiful nuance there. Yeah, it's a great scene for sure. Thanks to all our listeners who write or tweet us every week to let us know their thoughts on what we discuss on the episodes. If you want to let us know your thoughts, you can, of course, email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com, the way listener Dave did. And you can always tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter. Number, please. Hello? WOTW Radio in Cayuga, New Mexico, and this is the news for the hour. Now, what would you like to tell us about yourself? I don't know. Cool. Aren't you like some big science girl? Tell me about science. Edward, it's Faye. I'm a sound king for the board and interrupted your radio show. What a sound like? 
Everett. Welcome back to the second half of our show where we're going to move away from a, a very tried and true formula, Tom Hanks plus World War II, and go into something a little bit, I don't know, I would guess it, I, I guess it's also tried and true, but it's definitely less ubiquitous, <laughs> the 50s sci-fi, 50s set sci-fi picture, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess you could, you could say what what connects these two movies is they're very focused. They're very contained. So maybe maybe that's a good way to uh, bring continuity to the show today. Yeah, you know, we, we got to find the, the commonalities wherever they <laughs> yeah. pop up. And that's definitely one of them. In some ways, Wade, one can see Amazon Studios' new film, The Vast of Night, as an answer of sort to Netflix's Stranger Things. There are some differences. Stranger Things' 80s period setting is replaced by the aesthetic of the 1950s American Southwest in The Vast of Night. Where Stranger Things doesn't skimp on briskly paced thrills, The Vast of Night is set in a more subdued shoestring indie mode. But overall, The Vast of Night is telling a similar story in which two teenagers, a naive switchboard operator, and an ambitious radio DJ discover strange goings-on in their sleepy small town and set out to investigate it as best they can. Wade, this film made quite a splash on the film festival circuit when it was first making the rounds, winning audience accolades at the Slamdance Film Festival and the Toronto International Film Festival, to name just two. Now that we've had a chance to see it streaming, my question for you is, would you say that it lives up to all the praise it got? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if this film necessarily comes together in the end for me like I want it to, but I I did like it, and I wish that there were more movies like this. Just almost cerebral, self-contained science fiction stories, and, and that's what you get here. And I think there is a thematic core that kind of runs through this movie, and we'll talk about it as we go throughout this review. So it is a an interesting story. It's definitely a mysterious story. You want to find answers. But there seems to be a foundation there. It seems as if Patterson has something he wants to emphasize. And I think that's being on the inside of society and being on the outside of society. And there's some truly memorable moments, uh, in particular uh, some long take camera shots that just kind of they did blow me away so a, a lot to like about the vast of night yeah you know i feel a little bit about the vast of night similar to how i felt about uh shane caruth's uh first film primer which is another sci-fi film that was made for you know very little money and has a very cerebral uh sensibility and is much more interested in um in more more lo-fi thrills rather than delivering kind of this you know whiz bang action or lots of you know uh spooky sci-fi tropes it's it's more interested in other things and while i appreciated that about primer i didn't end up liking it all that much in the end like there there are elements of it that i appreciate but as a overall experience i kind of was left a little bit cold by it and i think that kind of happened to me with the vast of night where there are certainly parts of this film that just absolutely blow me away i think of that just showstopper of a shot that goes 
from uh, the open door of the building where one character is manning the you know this old timey switchboard, and then basically the camera goes all the way across town in this unbroken steady cam shot into a high school auditorium, kind of swoops through this basketball game that's going on and the audience is cheering, then kind of goes up the risers, through a window, and then down the road to the uh, radio station behind the auditorium and just all in one unbroken shot, just flawlessly choreographed. And it's that kind of technical showmanship that I really appreciate and that maybe is a little bit scarce in indie films of this caliber where they're just kind of, you know, they're trying to get their vision on screen and they might be less interested in really going for broke with some of these fancier shots. That's not what Andrew Patterson is doing with this film here. He likes those long takes. He likes just letting the camera sit and patiently observe a character as he or she listens to something or he or she just carries on a conversation and there's no need to gussy it up with a lot of uh, fan, uh, soundtrack choices uh, with, with music or anything. There's not a whole lot of desire to sort of cut away in case the audience might get bored. No, Andrew Passion knows what he's going for here. I think overall, though, my problem with the film is that it never really feels like it amounts to all that much in, in the end. And maybe we can try to pick apart why that is, because it did feel strange to me that a film that I appreciate so many individual moments from ended up kind of leaving me cold uh, by by the time the credits. Yeah, were. and 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 that was the same for me. It was just kind of like, oh, okay, yeah. And there's so much promise in the first three fourths of the picture, uh, even up to that ending. It's just uh, very taunt. And and what I like too about Patterson's style is he forces audiences to lean in. And it almost feels like a 1950s movie in that sense. When you watch a 1950s movie, you need to watch it and you need to listen. It assumes that the audience is paying attention and they have the ability to track what happens, even if what's said is only said over dialogue. And that's this type of movie. And so for the first oh, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. We're just kind of following these characters around, listening to them talk. And we've got to, we've got to put the pieces together. You know, this is who they are. This is the nature of their relationship. This is what they do. That's all on us. And Patterson shoots these characters, especially from the beginning. And, and it begins primarily with Jake Horowitz, and his character, Everett, uh, Patterson, he, he shoots him wide. And it, it's as if, it's as if this character is an extra. It's as if we're kind of following him around so he can take us to a place and then the camera will move to the main character. But after a while, we realize, okay, we're supposed to be listening to this guy. We're supposed to be following him around. He's important to the plot. And I think that goes back to the thematic core here. And this is a film about insiders and about outsiders. At one point, a character calls into Everett's radio station, and he begins to uh, talk about his experiences uh, in the military. And it's only later that he tells Everett that he's African-American. And he says, I, I didn't tell you earlier, 
because I didn't know if you'd listen to me. And then there's another character who is a single mom, and people, we learn, don't listen to her. And we get this sense that while everybody's doing one thing, while all of society is here, there are people on the outside looking for connection. They're reading between the lines. They're seeing what other people don't see because they're not a part of that mass. And I like that idea. I just wish, like you mentioned, Kevin, it would have connected uh, at the end to something kind of bigger than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I, and I think that the ingredients for it to reach that next level are at least present in in what we did get. I appreciate how that this kind of this first major sequence of the film is more or less just an, an incredibly long tracking shot where uh, Everett and Faye kind of they're they're walking and talking. And Everett's kind of this this fast-talking radio DJ type who's constantly moving on to the next thing. And he's talking to Faye about what, what she needs to do in order to kind of make it big as a radio personality. Like, how do you interview somebody? How do you ask questions? How do you listen carefully to what the other person is saying? And over the course of this bravura tracking shot, she kind of gets a chance to test that out. You know, there are these families who are sitting in their car listening to the radio broadcast of this high school basketball game because their town is so small that there's literally nothing else to do. And they kind of move from car to car and they just talk to them and they chat about the the big story of the town, which is that time that a squirrel chewed through some wires in the high school building. And it, it's it's all very charming and it it establishes a certain character to the town, but it also establishes uh, arguably one of the central themes of the film, which is that those who who take the time to kind of stop and pay attention are the ones who are are rewarded in the end. And that's kind of what we see in this film, or sorry, that's kind of what we see in this in this first sequence is these character, one character essentially teaching another character to to not just, be around other people, but to be with them and to actively attend to them. And that's something that Patterson does so well at uh, portraying and sketching out for us so that when the sci-fi elements ramp up a little bit more, there's a pretext for us to care about it beyond just the the two characters we've been following around the entire time. Like, if there are... Uh, paranormal forces at work in this small town. We would like the the family with the cute little kid listening to the high school basketball game. We want them to be okay just as much as we want our two protagonists to be okay. You no, know, and and that's a good point. And the idea of, of just listening and paying attention. I mentioned the caller who calls in to the radio station, and then the single mom who's elderly, and the characters uh, listen to them as they tell their stories. And it's just kind of fascinating how patient the movie is in those sequences because we just sit there and listen to them for a long time. And the caller, we don't actually see his face the entire movie. We just stop and listen to his story. And a lot of these are long single takes. When the characters meet uh, the single mom, we just sit there and we just we watch her as she tells her story. And what she's saying could be 100% true. Maybe some of the assertions she makes aren't necessarily accurate, 
but we listen and we're we're made to contend with with her ideas and you get the sense that these characters don't always have that and they don't have people who are necessarily paying attention to them and i found that utterly fascinating and i also like the way that this is framed so this is framed kind of like um almost like an episode of the twilight zone it's a show within a show so the film opens with this kind of 1950s uh, tv screen and we kind of zoom into the screen and it's black and white and eventually it transitions to a full color and we get to to watch these characters but every once in a while it kind of jumps back to this story and there's this this meta quality to it about the nature of stories and the way that people share those stories what's true what's not true how should they believe be believed that's kind of the cornerstone of this movie and and i think that that idea works and i want to i love to see more crisp movies like this that just have a fun science fiction angle and just let us kind of play in that world for a little bit and i think the movie it does that for the most part yeah i don't know i i think that framing device that you mentioned where we kind of start off watching this old-timey television set that does this uh, parody version of the Twilight Zone intro before going into the story proper. I I got a little bit impatient with that metafictional angle to the film. Not necessarily—it just feels—it feels very cute, but I don't really see that it adds a whole lot to the film as a whole. I just, I feel like it would have been just as strong if Patterson had trusted this material enough to just play it straight and let his bravura filmmaking uh, in other parts of the film kind of speak for itself. I think the the part where he kind of winks at us, like, isn't this like a, a Twilight Zone episode you saw at one point? Isn't this kind of like that kind of just, it, it took me out of it, but not really in in a good way. And I think overall it was just kind of extraneous. It, it makes me wonder a little bit if the screenplay by uh, written by James Montague and Craig Sanger, um, maybe kind of Patterson felt the need to jazz it up as much as he could. Because I do think that there's uh, a quality to the writing here where it's not, it never really reaches that next level where I, I'm kind of on the edge of my seat wanting to know what happens next. I love the moment-to-moment experience of watching this film and seeing what Patterson does with his camera and with his actors and and just sort of letting them be on screen. That's all great. I don't know that the writing really lives up to the standard of the filmmaking. And I wonder if some of the metafictional touches were kind of almost there as a as a way to cover for the the less spectacular stuff going on in the screenplay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I liked it. I, I thought those those elements worked pretty well. And I, I think, too, uh, James Monahue is Andrew Patterson. And so he he wrote the screenplay oh, okay. under a different name. And so he he's kind of a part of this whole process. And, yeah, I, I mean, there is something to landing the plane. And, and you can you can set up, you can create these mystery boxes, and you've got to walk that line between showing us too much, showing us not enough wonder. And I everybody knows on, who listens to this podcast, I love 
Steven Spielberg, but Spielberg has a way, especially in something like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, to to close out this big science fiction movie in a way that's mysterious and a little strange, but also uh, just extremely captivating. And and uh, you you feel transcendent watching the end of that. You, you don't you don't hear. And I think that is maybe just a weakness of the screenplay and just the overall vision as to where this movie is is headed. Yeah, there's kind of a ho hum quality to the the way this film ends that I, I really wasn't a fan of, and that is really unfortunate, especially because it does seem to almost very intentionally evoke close encounters of the third kind and just that spectacular light and sound show that Spielberg gives us so that the resolution um, might not necessarily what you might, might have been what you would expect out of an alien invasion picture, but it's still uh, got its own power to it. This one, it kind of just feels like it ends with a little bit of a shrug, which is unfortunate given the, the atmosphere and the potential that seems to to be there in the in the film. Listeners, that is our review of The Vast of Night. As Kevin mentioned earlier, it is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Let us know what you think at Pod on Twitter or seeing and believing CAPC at gmail.com. This is the end of the show, and at this point, we give you, our listeners, a recommendation from the world of television and or film for your week. Kevin, what would you like to recommend to our listeners today? Well, I was thinking about uh, sci-fi films that are maybe a little bit uh, less of the blockbuster variety and more of the the thought-provoking or unconventional variety, and that led me to uh, the 2010 film Never Let Me Go, directed by Mark Romanek and starring Carey Mulligan, Andrew Garfield, and Kira Knightley. And just the that cast list by itself should make you interested in this film, just because that is just an absolute murderer's row of of lead performers, and that's even before you get to the fact that Charlotte Rampling and Andrea Riseborough and all these other great actors are also in this picture. But I'm, I guess, I'm spending a lot of time talking about the cast and the the genre because I almost don't want to give away too much of the of the story because so much of the film's power lies in slowly realizing who these characters are, what their place in the world is, and kind of what ultimate fate they're they're staring down the barrel of. And the slow revelation over the course of the film is what gives it its its power and makes it so achingly sad. This is a film that's based off of a Kazuo Ishiguro novel. He's also well known for having written The Remains of the Day, which is another heartbreaker of a novel. And I'm a kind of an Ishiguro fanboy, so I'm already inclined to like this film. But I think Romanek and his collaborators do such a good job of adapting the feel of Never Let Me Go's tragedy into a, a cinematic piece and uh, not skimping on any of the source material's power, but also adding a little something to it through its casts great performances i think it's really wonderful so if you're looking for 
some sci-fi that's a little bit quieter, Never Let Me Go is a good place to start. Yeah, I, I very much like that film, and it's kind of due for a rewatch uh, for me, but yeah, that's a, that's a great recommendation for this week. I am going to go with my recommendation this week with another film from Aaron Schneider. He directed Greyhound. He previously directed the 2009 movie Get Low. This stars Robert Duvall. He is a hermit who throws a funeral party for himself while he is still alive. Uh, The film also stars Sissy Spacek and Bill Murray. This is kind of the slow burn drama, but I, I felt really good. I felt really inspired by the end of this movie. It's just, it's, it's a low key, um, I feel like uplifting experience, and it makes you assess uh, the way that we live our lives and even the way that we end our lives. I don't know if many people talked about this when it came out. I I didn't hear a lot of uh, discussion surrounding it, but I I liked it a lot. And Robert Duvall, he's just, he's a great, he's a great performer. Uh, I'd love to see him in, in some more projects. But yeah, 2009's Get Low. I've heard so many good things about Get Low, and yet, for whatever reason, I have not made time to catch up with it yet, so I feel pretty bad about that. I, I really need to get around to it because, yeah, like I said, you're you're not the first person to sing its praises to high heaven to me. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it seems like one of those things that a lot of people missed, and uh, but it's pretty good, and, and it's good to see a Schneider back with Greyhound. I mean, he's been uh, gone for a little while, and, and I'm... You know, excited that he's he's back, and I think he's he's looking at another project with Bill Murray, who, as I mentioned, was in Get Low. So we'll we'll, we'll see. Hopefully, it won't be too long before we get to see another movie from him. Listeners, we've got some great projects coming up next week, some great films to review. Make sure to keep an eye out for that episode. As always, make sure to rate and review our podcast on iTunes or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. Just search Seeing and Believing. Check out our icon. Give us a star review, and if you can, write out a review. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you as always, by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.